In this episode, I'm going to cover the timeline of how Michigan transitioned from a wilderness territory into statehood. Now, some of this material I've covered earlier in episodes, but this will bring the whole story together. In 1534, the area we know today was part of the original colony of France, which was named New France after the exploration of the Gulf of St. Lawrence by an explorer named Jacques Cartier. This area spanned from New Brunswick, Canada to New Orleans. And if you can envision that on a map, that's quite a large area of geography. Now, prior to 1534, this region was populated by the First Nation people, Native American tribes. The territory was eventually ceded to Great Britain and Spain in 1763 under the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Seven Years' War, part of which included the French and Indian War in America. This land eventually would become absorbed between America and Canada. However, today it is the reason you will find small pockets of French-speaking communities throughout both countries. They are all residuals of the influence from the times of New France. Not surprising, you'll find that these pockets of French communities are located in cities which were port towns on major waterways, such as New Orleans and Montreal, Quebec. On September 6, 1780, the Congress, while still at war with England in the American Revolution, resolved to press their claims for this land, referred to then at that time the Western Territory. During the Revolutionary War, colonial migration west had begun to occur into the Great Lakes region. In 1784, they affirmed their position on this again, following the conclusion of the war in 1783. Although with the conclusion of the war, the British presence was vacated from the colonies, they still held garrisons along the frontier edge during this time of the Western Territory and would do so until the end of the War of 1812. Arthur St. Clair was a political and military leader in the Ohio country in the years of the American Revolution. In 1785, Pennsylvania elected St. Clair to represent the state in the Confederation Congress. He served as the president of the Confederation Congress in 1787, his last year in office. That same year, the Congress drafted what would become to be known as the Ordinance of 1787, which defined the Northwest Territory and also outlined the steps and the system to establish a territorial government therein. The same Congress appointed St. Clair to be the first governor of the Northwest Territory, and he would remain in that position until 1802. The Northwest Territory covered the area that we know today as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and the part of Minnesota east of the Mississippi. In 1802, Ohio became the first state from the Northwest Territory to achieve statehood. So the remains of the Northwest Territory became renamed the Indiana Territory, and William Henry Harrison was appointed as the regional governor by President John Adams. Harrison would later become the ninth president of the United States. In 1805, the Territory of Michigan was created and set apart from the Indiana Territory, and General William Hull of Massachusetts was appointed as the first governor after an appointment by 
President Thomas Jefferson. He would serve in that position until 1813. Now, during the years that Hull served as the territorial governor, the population was in an estimated range of 5,000 to 7,000 people. In 1810, Detroit, though 109 years old at that point, had only 1,400 people and it's estimated that the population was 4,762 people living outside of Detroit in the entire territory during that time. The Michigan Territory at that time was defined as what we know today as the Lower Peninsula. The settlements fringed on the eastern border from the city of Monroe, which was known as Frenchtown during that time, to Fort Gratio, which is in the area of Port Huron, with the occasional settlement as far as Mackinac and even Sault Marie. With the exception of some venturesome traders from the east, the inhabitants were almost wholly French. The interior of the west, south, and southwest for 200 miles was an unbroken, uninhabited wilderness with the exception of the sparse Native American population. There were no roads west or north of the Ohio and no steamboats on the Great Lakes. Several things contributed to the slow growth and development. The area was originally settled by the French, as noted earlier, and not the English. The commerce, trade, and other resources had drawn its life from French rather than English sources. After the American Revolution, conditions remained the same for a long time with British garrisons holding forts on American soil along the frontier with a wide expanse of forest in between. In essence, the territorial area of Michigan remained mostly unchanged during General William Hull's time as governor. The pivotal point of change could be isolated from two to perhaps three specific events which shifted the region out of a condition of dormancy to a steady and rapidly growing population. The first being the conclusion of the War of 1812 and the Treaty of Ghent, which was signed on December 24, 1814, which resulted in the withdrawal of the British from the American soil. It also opened up the Great Lakes region to further American expansion, which was considered a diplomatic victory to the United States. The other two events I'll cover in a moment. On October 29, 1813, the second territorial governor was appointed for Michigan by President James Madison. His name was Lewis Cass. As a young man in Ohio, he had studied law and became an attorney. He was eventually elected as a prosecuting attorney and later served in the legislature. In 1812, he had been commissioned a colonel in the Ohio Regiment, and during his service, he saw action on the Canadian border during the War of 1812. He was later given the rank of Brigadier General, and as the war drew to a close, he received the appointment to the Territorial Governorship of Michigan. He would serve in this capacity until 1831. It was during his time as governor that the second and third significant events occurred to create a population shift in the emerging territory. The second event was a development of progress within the state of New York with the opening of the Erie Canal, which was built between the years 1817 to 1825. This opened up transport for entire families, their property, and the shipment of goods from New York and New England across the canal and other waterways to the Great Lakes 
and into the Michigan Territory. The third significant event came after the territory was given the privilege of electing a delegate to Congress in 1819. The first delegate was William Woodbridge of Detroit, who served one term. The second delegate elected to succeed him was Judge Solomon Sibley, also of Detroit. However, it was the third elected delegate to follow Sibley that made the most significant effect on the future of Michigan. In 1823, a Catholic priest named Gabriel Richard was elected. He had been born in France and educated for the priesthood. He came to Detroit in 1798, where he built St. Anne's Church, a very large, iconic sanctuary that still exists today. Father Richard was very popular with the people of all classes. He was not only a loyal and devoted churchman, but he was also an energetic and public-spirited citizen. He published the first newspaper ever in Michigan and was very interested in education. He became a co-founder of the State University, which later became the University of Michigan, which he co-founded with the appointed Chief Justice of the Michigan Territory, Augustus Woodward. It was during his one term in Congress that he proved to be more of a friend to the people of Michigan and its future than perhaps anybody realized at the time. He was able to secure funding for a bill for survey and construction of the first territorial roads into the interior of Michigan. Ultimately, in 1832, Congress passed an act to authorize the surveying and laying out of a road from Detroit to the mouth of the Grand River on Lake Michigan, further expanding the road system across the territory. Additional lateral roads were later constructed, connecting the cross-territorial roads, augmenting pioneer travel and settlement into the interior of this wilderness territory. Unfortunately, Father Gabriel Richard, the only Catholic priest to ever serve in the Congress for Michigan, fell victim to cholera in 1832. So he was never able to see the results of his efforts for this emerging territory. In 1816, Indiana became a state and Illinois followed two years later, leaving Michigan alone as a northern territory still a few decades away from statehood. When Governor Cass came into office in 1813, the system of government for the Michigan Territory was still under the Ordinance of 1787. Under that system, the governors and judges, all appointed by the President of the United States, were supreme within the limitations defined in the Ordinance. The appointment of a territorial governor and judges was the first step of three on the path to statehood as defined in the Ordinance. Now, let's explore some of the formations of the earliest counties. Wayne County was the first county organized by Governor Cass in 1813, and at that time it embraced the whole territory. It was named in honor of General Anthony Wayne, who served in the Revolutionary War, who had been a senior officer also on the Ohio frontier. He was nicknamed Mad Anthony Wayne because of his military exploits and fiery personality. In 1817, President James Monroe paid a visit to Detroit, and soon after, Monroe County County was organized and named in his honor. A year later, Macomb County was organized, named after General Alexander Macomb, a highly decorated veteran of the War of 1812. Then followed a quick succession of counties all up through 1822. Mackinac, 
Oakland, St. Clair, Lenaway, Sanilac, Saginaw, and Shiawassee. Mackinac County has a complicated name history. It's been said that the Native Americans thought the shape of the island resembled a turtle, so they named it Michi-Mackinac, meaning turtle in their language. Then the French used their own version of the original pronunciation and named it Michelin-Mackinac. However, the English shortened it to the present name Mackinac or Mackinac. The name Oakland County was very simple, as it was named for the large presence of oak trees in the region. St. Clair County was named in honor of General Arthur St. Clair, whom I mentioned earlier. He served as the first Northwest Territorial Governor, and he was also an officer in the French and Indian War. Lenaway County was taken from the Shawnee Indian word meaning Indian. Sanilac was taken from the name of a Wyandotte chief at the time, and the word means spirit warrior in that language. Saginaw County was an Ojibwe, also known as a Chippewa Indian word meaning land of the socks, which was developed around a fur trading post established in 1816. The Sox were believed to be the name of a people that once lived there. Shiawassee was taken from the name of the Shiawassee River, which was derived from Indian lore, meaning rolling or sparkling waters. If you look at the placement of these early counties, they were all very easterly settlements or formed around settlements in proximities to waterways. No counties into the interior were organized until later. In 1823, the second step in territorial government was taken when the people elected by popular vote 18 councilmen, from which nine of those councilmen were selected out of that pool by the president and the governor of the territory to recommend to the Senate for confirmation. The territory then remained under the governor and the council appointed and confirmed as stated here until 1827 when the exclusive power was eventually given to the people. In 1829, following the election of Andrew Jackson as president, 12 more counties were organized. Now, you're going to see the influence of the Andrew Jackson administration in how many of these counties were named. Jackson County was obviously named after President Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States. Calhoun County was named after John C. Calhoun, who was the vice president to Andrew Jackson in his first term. Van Buren County was named after Martin Van Buren, who in 1829 was serving as Andrew Jackson's Secretary of State. He would later serve as vice president in his second term and eventually become the eighth president of the United States. Branch County was named after John Branch, the Secretary of the Navy during Jackson's first term. Berrien County was named after John Berrien, the Attorney General under Andrew Jackson. Ingham County was named after Samuel Ingham, the Secretary of the Treasury. Eaton County was named after the Secretary of War, John Eaton. Berry County was named after William T. Berry, the Postmaster General, all serving with Andrew Jackson's cabinet. Cass County was named in honor of Territorial Governor Lewis Cass, who would leave his position in 1831 and become the Secretary of War on Andrew Jackson's cabinet, succeeding John Eaton. Hillsdale County was named for the terrain which featured hills and dales. A dale is a valley or elongated depression 
in the earth. Kalamazoo County was named after the Kalamazoo River, which according to a historic marker at the state rest area off of I-94, came from an Indian word which meant boiling water. St. Joseph County was named after the St. Joseph River, which was originally named by the French colonists in the 17th century, who named the river for the declared patron saint of New France. So the name St. Joseph is a very old name going back almost five centuries to Michigan's early French history. These 12 gave two tiers of organized counties along the lower parts of the state, with a population driven by the formation of the territorial roads. In 1832, the federal census gave the population of Michigan as 32,538. When Governor Cass left to become a member of Jackson's cabinet in 1831, George Porter of Pennsylvania was appointed to succeed him. Governor Porter did not arrive in Michigan for nearly a year after his appointment. The secretary appointed at the time was John Mason of Virginia, who in the interval acted as the governor. However, he soon resigned and went abroad, and President Jackson appointed his son, Stevens Thompson Mason, at age 19 to succeed his father as secretary where in turn he served as acting governor. In the meantime, the desire for statehood was growing among the people of Michigan. In 1834, this desire took the form of a formal request to Congress by the Territorial Council for the passage of an act to enable them to proceed to form a state constitution and organize a state government. A long, drawn-out controversy with Ohio over the southern boundary of Michigan ultimately occurred, which involved the president, his cabinet, both houses of Congress together with the governors of the two states as parties to the controversy. This not only delayed Michigan's admission into the Union, but at one point threatened to become a conflict of arms between Ohio and the Michigan Territory. The matter was finally resolved and settled by Congress, whereby the 10-mile strip of land in dispute was given to Ohio, and Michigan, in lieu thereof, was given the Upper Peninsula. In the meantime, Michigan had framed their constitution, elected a governor and other state officers, a legislature, two U.S. senators, and a member to Congress. The machinery of statehood was all constructed and set up, but could not be put in motion until Congress gave final approval for statehood. This was done on January 26, 1837, and Michigan was admitted as the 26th state of the Union. The young Stevens Thompson Mason was elected as the first governor of the territory in 1835 at the age of 24 by that time, and he would serve in this capacity during the first years of Michigan statehood into 1840. Mason County would eventually be named in his honor when it was organized in 1840. And that is how Michigan made the journey from a territory to statehood. So that is going to conclude this episode. If you want to see more on this subject, I'll post a link to a YouTube video I created on this topic in the episode description. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me in the next episode.